Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen, Murph, Ken. Hello there. How are you? How are all here? Now that Ireland's World Cup, uh, well, now that the games are about to start getting a little trickier, it's only natural to start feeling a little bit nervous about things. Are Italy really that bad? What if they take out a couple of key players, injure them before the France game? Well, wipe those fears away, everybody, because I'm 100% confident about the Irish setup. You want to know why? Go on. Well, because Keen Healy is pumping serious iron in the gym, Ken. That's why. Yeah, I saw that. I mean, he's uh, apparently he's deadlifting about 200 kilos oh, in his photograph. Yeah, according to the photos that have been splashed all across the internet. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Did he really do that sort of serious weights in the lead-up to a game? Is that Yeah, there's a video along with that. The IRFU put out about a five-minute video, which I ended up watching. <laughs> I was up very early this morning for some reason, Ken. So I was doing a lot of internetting. Mm. And I ended up watching a five-and-a-half-minute video of Jason Cowman, Ireland's conditioning coach, explaining the different weights they were doing. The backs are in a slightly different program to the forwards. I found that quite an arbitrary distinction. I mean, clearly, Keen Healy is going to be a different build from Rob Carney. But the way some of the backs are these days, it just seems a little bit uh, of a strange one that like, okay, forwards all do this and backs all do something slightly different. Well, presumably... Uh, look, I'm not a strength condition coach, on, <laughs> but no. uh, doesn't it have... It must have something to do with the fact that backs have to run more. But a back, yeah, but a back row has to run quite a lot. I would say if you're if the example that you've taken there, Keen Healy, Rob Kearney, mm. I mean, that's pretty extreme. That's pretty extreme. Well, it's not that it's extreme; it's just the two extremes of a rugby team. Mm. Yeah. If you're talking about Robbie Henshaw and Peter O'Mahony, yeah, you know, I, I would say that they're they're. But again, oh, you're, you're, what you're looking for from O'Mahony is probably, you know, the, like the body shapes are very similar, but. What you're actually jobs. asking the two bodies to do is yes, kind of different. Is but in studio today, we've got one of the most powerful men ever to play for Ireland. See, there are piano players on, and there are piano movers. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Go on, though. That would, we'll talk about this off air. One of the most powerful men ever to play for Ireland. Do you remember Stephen Ferris picking up Will Genio at the last World Cup and marching him down the field? Do I ever, own? I had a look at it again today. It was at the 38-minute mark, and the score was 6-all at the time. For some reason, I thought the game was already done and dusted, and it was a big exclamation point on the whole thing but actually he was right in the middle of it he picked him up and just uh, kind of Jonah Lomond him a little bit mm. about 20 or 30 yards down the well, field well it is an extremely funny image I mean everything about it is hilarious that uh, 
and it goes back to the basic body shapes required to play rugby, I suppose. But I mean, within the idea that there are very strong men and then there are less strong men, very tall men, then short men, that there, at no stage are you supposed to be able to pick someone up bodily, take take his feet, both feet off the ground, and run with him as you're carrying him like a little child. Will Kenya at the time he was getting really hyped up as well. He was probably wasn't long on the scene, was he? Back in 2011, I do remember uh, it was exciting a lot of people and he mm. was huge, a uh, massive key to what Australia were doing at that stage, which is why it was such a big deal. But Ferris has brought out his autobiography. He's going to be in short in short, studio shortly, I should say, to chat about that. Ken, you were more struck, forget about these images of the Irish players doing weights, you were more struck by the now famous photographs of the Irish players at Alton Towers. One player in particular? And Devin Toner, I guess, was the one. I mean, apparently reluctant visitor to Alton Towers because at six foot ten, it's quite difficult for him to get into any of the rides. Donegal like, Ryan explained this. Donegal Ryan said, "I didn't really want to go, and poor old Dev could barely get into any of those things. The two tallest guys." He managed to get into the um, the uh, roller coaster anyway, or one of the roller coasters. And there's a picture in which uh, they're kind of speeding around a, a corner, and everyone is is kind of uh, you know the, the thing is sideways. Ah! They have roller coaster faces on the rest of them. Everyone has got a roller coaster face, except for Devin Toner, who looks a bit like. Do you remember Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off? <laughs> when Cameron, when Cameron is really depressed, and yeah. he's sitting when Cameron was in Egypt's land, mm-hmm. let yeah. my Cameron go, and that's basically Devin Toner's face. He just looks as though he's thinking about. He's just absent-mindedly thinking about something else entirely, uh, apart from the fact that he's on a roller. Laundry. Coaster. He looks like he's thinking about laundry. Even his body position. He's yeah. sort of got a, everyone else is really gripping the bars tight. He's got his hands just resting gently on his legs, his legs dangling, dangling yeah. quite a ways over the edge of the seat. Maybe can't, does can't it, touch him, you know, just can't can't get to Devon Towner. Do you reckon that's it? That gravitational forces don't have the same effect on somebody of that height? Well, we know something about Devon Towner that we didn't know yesterday, and that he's got that is that he has got incredibly tightly packed viscera, which. I don't think anybody, anybody would have suspected. Now, do you think that this is going to have an impact on how Joe Schmidt picks his team? I mean, if you're Ian Henderson about, has been playing well, but... But, but have you seen him react in a really high-pressure situation? <laughs> I don't how see Ian Henderson, Henderson in any of these photos, actually, yeah. or do I? And While right Devin right. Toner's up there smoking a galois, effectively, I mean, mm. you know, Ian Henderson's probably sitting on the, the, the side of the, the ramp apologising to someone about freaking out and holding the ride up by half an hour because he couldn't hack it. Mm. I mean Ian Henderson but do these bars always stay in place how do I know human error could be costly I can't, I can't do it I can't do it I can't do it that was Ian Henderson on the side of that ride mm. so we need to think about this you know we, it, it, we need to devote some thought to this might not ask Stephen Ferris about roller coasters but we will ask him about the current World Cup when he's in here Murph the Mayo football team is in meltdown lockdown yeah. everything down <laughs> what's going on there? what's going on well the didn't, don't fancy their managers, their joint managers, um, and they won them out. They had a vote, uh, All Ireland Football final weekend, twenty-seven-seven uh, vote, uh, vote of no confidence in uh, their management, and this is a situation. This is a situation that a lot of club players find themselves in as well, and actually, it's even more prevalent at club level than it is at intercounty level because you would think that people in charge of intercounty teams want it really, really badly, have managed for a long number of years, know how to make a group of men follow what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Club level, maybe that's not as much the case. And this happens all the time. The the idea that uh, 20 years ago, the difference 
between uh, the amount of uh, uh, commitment required to play and the amount of commitment required to run a club maybe wasn't that different. At di- now, club players are devoting so much of their time to it, they just can't abide wasting a year of their lives with a manager that they don't believe is giving them the best chance to succeed. So they're faced with a often extremely painful choice to make. Uh, oftentimes about a neighbour that what I have to do now is I have to tell my neighbour, a guy who maybe I went to school with or I went to school with their younger brother or something, uh, that we don't fancy you. And what club players have found out is there's no nice way of doing this. There's no uh, respectful way of doing this. There's no way of doing it which leaves everyone feeling like a better person. And, But at the same time, you you have a choice to make. I mean, are you just going to not play football the following year because it's a waste of, it's a waste of your time? And, it, it, and f- when you're in a situation like that where a manager isn't good enough to win you a county final or win you an All-Ireland final, it, you're wasting your time. Your time would be better spent at your career or at your marriage or at your relationship or whatever. That's assuming that the manager isn't good enough. And in this case, they seem to be doing... They were getting a lot of praise after the quarterfinal against Donegal for putting Barry Moore in there at sweeper and for having Aidan O'Shea playing a full forward for a lot of the season. So from the outside, it, it, it looked pretty good up until the yeah. mini collapse in the semi-final replay. The, the thing about this is that you don't. no one knows except for the people in the dressing room. And the dressing room is supposed to be a sacrosanct place where... What you're, if you're if you're Dublin, there's 50 people in the dressing room. If you're other people, it's even less than that. They're the people that know whether they've been given the best chance at winning an All-Ireland. And if they're saying that it's not, I mean, what we're hearing is that they're going to dig their heels in, that Kennelly and Pat Holmes are going to dig their heels in, they're determined to stay in the job. Why on earth you would want to do that? In a situation where you're not getting paid two million quid a year, like all you're doing is you're just digging your heels in and just saying, well... Screw these guys! I think I'm doing a good job. So, but I mean, you're 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 dead. Like, there's the only way you can prove that you're doing a good job, that you're a good manager, is by winning the All Ireland. You're definitely not going to win the All Ireland if 27 of a 34 man panel think you're not good enough. So, it's just it would it's just unbelievably counterproductive for them to stay in that job, and that realization will hit them whether it hits them this week, whether it hits them in a month's time, and then they go, what what needs to happen next in Mayo football? is blatantly obvious, regardless of how you think the players have acted or how you think the managers should react now to the situation. Well, we'll talk to Malachy Clerk and, and Mike Finnerty. You'd probably know Mike from his commentaries. He's also the sports editor of the Mayo News, so we'll get a bit of um, bit of local knowledge on that one. Simon, the England team is named to play Australia today. Jonathan Joseph is back from his injury, so slamming Sam Burgess um, is out. No great surprise. Yeah, cut. Um, I think I, some people expected Lancaster maybe to panic a little bit and make a whole lot of changes, but he's only really made injury changes. Uh, Vunapola is gone, obviously. Um, Courtney Law is a little bit injured. Jonathan Joseph is just coming back from injury, so he's effectively replacing Slam and Sam. Um, so Owen Farrell staying on is the only real decision that he's made there, and Owen Farrell kicked so well that you couldn't really drop him. Also, I think in the kind of situation that they're in, um, a guy with impenetrable confidence is probably who you wanted out half rather than the more talented one so it might be the right decision I was interested in how big an impact Gordon Darcy's Irish Times column this week made in the UK he's been trending writing, so. tre- trending yeah he's been writing some trending Ken he's been writing some good ones and this trending. was That's great. probably the the best of them in the sense that there was it was exactly what you want from a former player 
technical detail um, and a sort of clear-headed analysis. He was saying essentially what a lot of people have been saying, but uh, he seemed to say it in a different enough manner that and maybe it's just because maybe in England don't care too much about what Will Carling says anymore. They've heard it all before. When it, but when it's a recently retired coordinator, he's a very big name in rugby in this part of the world. And when he has such a clear view of why England have messed up by picking Sam Burgess, maybe that's why it made more of an impact. Yeah, maybe. I, the English, funnily, haven't gone into intricate detail in the articles I've read about what went wrong. It's more of a sort of an emotional response and, oh my God, we're in big trouble and we've, we're facing Australia in a few days' time, as opposed to what actually technically went wrong in that second half from such a strong position. You never read that in English newspapers. There's, not, there's just not the level of technical insight into the game. Like, I, I would say that in the newspapers, there's not a level, a level of technical insight and deconstruction of the game that we get over here. Well, I'd say in football there is. Oh, in football, but yeah, not but in, in rugby, rugby. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the thing that makes Gordon Darcy's articles extremely good and is that they combine um, a sophisticated, like a really sophisticated level of uh, tactical and technical insight. That's hard to put across in print. Yeah, with a, with a cold... Uh, and crushingly clinical um, finger pointing. At, at <laughs> the losers. finger pointing is very important. Yeah. Yeah. You, there are victims. Uh, you know, there's always victims with a mm. Gordon Darcy column. You know, Sam Burgess this week, last week it was the South African center Crane, wasn't it? Jesse Creel, yeah. So, I mean, all I'm saying is this is not a guy who's afraid to point the finger when someone's, someone's uh, done badly. And it's a combination of those things that's kind of rare because, you know, one without the other doesn't really have the same impact as, oh, here's a guy who really knows what he's talking about and he's totally <laughs> putting blame on this guy. Yeah. All right, Gordon Darcy's former international teammate Stephen Ferris has brought out his autobiography. It's called Man and Ball. I'm delighted to say that Stephen is with us now. Stephen, you're very welcome into the studio. Thanks very much for having me. Listen, we've all been inundated this week. I don't know if you've seen any of these images of the Irish squad over in... Uh, where are they at the moment? Is it somewhere around London? Uh, pumping a lot of iron. Apparently, apparently Keen Healy is lifting 200 kilograms uh, deadlift. Are you as impressed as we are by this? Or are you thinking, geez, these lads, I want to stop no. showing off pretty soon. Yeah, <laughs> I actually actually seen that picture. And I think it was 300 kilos. All right. uh, because I counted the plates on each side. Uh, <laughs> me being a bit of a... I like to do my weights myself. So uh, I was actually seeing what he lifted. So yeah, by 300 kilos, I think was on it. Um, but knowing Keen Healy, he'd be giving it 100%. So... Um, yeah, he, he's a special he, weights machine. They had to revamp things in Leinster, apparently. He, to he's unbelievable. His physical strength. Um, I'm just glad he's been able to bounce back from such a serious injury um, because he's so powerful, so dynamic. And as you seen in 2011, especially against Australia, when he got man of the match in that game. You know, when does a prop ever get man of the match? And um, you know, he, he won that game for us in the end. So yeah, he's an absolute beast. Uh, how did you find that balance in your own career, in, in terms of the weights you have to do and, and the power you need in a rugby field? I remember Shane Horgan talking before about this, saying that some players go in, go over the top in the gym, and the type of power they have isn't necessarily as relevant to rugby. He actually name-checked you as somebody who ha- had the right balance, was able to bring all their power onto the field. How did you find that balance in your career? Yeah, it was. It was- Tough, I think. Um, you know, two thousand and seven was a prime example for the Irish team training really, really hard and getting really, really big and strong. But they weren't athletic, and their fitness probably wasn't where it needed to be for a World Cup. And Brian O'Driscoll's alluded that, you know, mm. plenty of times over the years. Um, but for myself, I was just born naturally powerful and and dynamic, and uh, thankfully I was able to do the weights um, that some other people mightn't been able to lift, uh, which obviously 
makes you more powerful uh, and more physical and, and, and that was just an element in my game which I love so um, anything I could do to make it better I, I tried to, to make it better and that was in the gym quite a bit Did that give you a separate confidence apart from what happened on the field because when you first came into the Ireland camp and you were doing weight sessions with Paul O'Connell and you talk in the book about looking up to these guys and being a little bit in awe and then you go to the gym and, and you're better than them all and Paul actually calls the crowd in and says look at what this guy is lifting you know, irrespective of what's happening in the training field and on the pitch, you lifting weights is kind of a way to get into the group and be respected. It is, yeah. You hit the nail on the head there. Um, I think when you come into a group like that and you aren't up to speed, it can be quite tough. And especially with guys coming in nowadays, young guys, you know, they're not going to be lifting the same weights as Paul O'Connell or Kane Healy, you know, prime example. Um, and it can be intimidating. But for me, it was kind of the opposite where I went into a group and, and felt right at home because I was doing exactly what Paul O'Connell was doing on the bench press. And I was, you know, going to do squats with David Wallace, who'd been, who's been around the block. And it was just brilliant for me. But, you know, one thing Brian O'Disco said was, uh, you know, this guy can obviously lift weights, but can he play rugby? And thankfully I was able to play rugby in the end as well. You were able to throw a javelin as well. Can yeah, you tell people uh, about this career that you yeah, had? Well, I wouldn't say it was a career. It was more <laughs> a bit of a hobby. Um yeah, it was good fun. Like in school, I picked up a rugby ball, but um, my passion was playing football and um, having the crack with the lads. And uh, I was given an opportunity to go to the district championships in school, uh, which is more or less like the first round. And I pitched up and a pair of old Nike Air Max Classic trainers. Um, it was soaking wet. Um, I had a bit of a hangover from the night before at the age of 15, which didn't go down too well with the parents. Um, but yeah, it was, it was I just threw it when I came third. Um, which got me through to the next round and pulled myself together and said, right, listen, let's give it a crack. And got myself a pair of spikes, um, a half-decent training week, <laughs> if there was a training week. Uh, and yeah, came first and then won the Ireland's uh, down in Tullamore. That's, that's, uh, that's the All-Ireland Championships. The All-Ireland right. Championships down in Tullamore. So uh, I think that was uh, the junior. So um, yeah, I probably had a, a few guys had a couple of years on me as well. So uh, it was good. I've got the the medal. It's not the same size as uh, the Six Nations trophy, but um, uh, it still sits pride place in my, in my parents' house. Yeah, because stories about this leaked out during your uh, rugby career, and we thought it might have been a bit of an urban myth, and then I read about it in the book, and it's <laughs> literally this guy and his runners hung over. Here, chuck this thing as far as you can. Oh, I can throw it really far. And then the second time you try it, you win the district. And then the third time you try it, you win the the national championship and it's kind of this feel of this this young lad who just doesn't know his own strength uh, like you're better at everything than I think you think you are in your head at that age yeah yeah I think you're right um, it's uh, sometimes you don't understand your own ability um, and it took me a while to even understand my own ability when it came to playing rugby um, and you got to believe in yourself and I think that's where young guys nowadays really do believe in themselves when they come on to the international scene, when they're given an opportunity to just take it, you know, and it's great to see. But for me, even throwing the javelin, I didn't realise I was good at it. I just thought I was, you know, given a chance to get out of school for a couple of days. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it gave me a few shoulder issues. So uh, mum was, was getting letters in the post and uh, I think it was the Non-Ireland Athletic Association were sending me these letters and every time one came through in the post like it was quickly ripping it up and putting it in the bin before your parents could see it uh, near enough yeah 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 and mum was like oh Stephen what's out there I was like oh just one of those letters mum but yeah I had no interest in throwing a javelin and honestly when I actually started to take it up a bit um, and throw it like every day in, in school 
my shoulders were getting sore and achy and I was like geez I'm 16 years old here and I'm starting <laughs> to get sore and um, and then I, I, I turned rugby obviously after that Did it take you a while though to really get into the rugby to really be convinced it by it? Yeah it did and people always say oh did you know you were going to be a professional rugby player you know when you were 18, 19 years of age and no, no not at all like I thought um, I was given a, an opportunity to play for uh, underage rugby and uh, I was just going out there to do my best and Little did I know, two years later, I'll be running out in the last ever international at Lansdowne Road uh, with Jamie Heaslip and Luke Fitzgerald in their first cap. Uh, never did I expect that. And that's one thing about professional sport, professional rugby in particular, that it can snowball very, very quickly. Well, was there, you say snowball, was there one particular moment, one particular game you played as a young lad that made you think, actually, this this is something I can do professionally? Um not really. I think it's more um, people who have been around the block, like Alan Clark, who I mentioned in the book, um, is now forwards coach at Ulster Rugby. Um, he, me, me and my mum went into it the same one day after playing for Ulster Youth, and he said to my mum, look, listen, I'm not going to fill your head full of magic here, but your son is going to play for Ulster in Ireland. And we kind of looked at each other with a half grin in their face going, is this guy for <laughs> real? Like, or is he serious? Um, but as you progress through the you know, under 19s, it's, it's under 20s now, it was under 21s for me, um, and and you're always the the cream of the crop, you know, you're always first name on the team sheet, you start to get realise, go, right, jeez, maybe I've got a shot at this, um, and then, of course, when you get your, your Ulster debut, and things just, look, I had a bit of luck as well, um, and, and things went my way, um, and yeah, it, 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 as you say there, it can snowball very quickly. Is there an overall feel, I think when I read the book, there's an overall feel to your career that rugby kind of grabbed you. People like Alan Clark and these other influential people kept telling you how good you were. And even at sort of under 18, under 19, under 20 level, you, were, you knew you were kind of getting good, but it didn't have this absolute certainty about where you were going. It almost seemed like it took other people in your life to say, Stephen, you're really good at this. Stick with it. Yeah, it, it did. And I, I was kind of a bit... Um talking about going down to Ireland camps and you know just sitting in the corner and kind of taking it all in and um, you know I wouldn't have been this confident young guy who believed in himself um, and it took a while to believe in myself and you know it probably took a few years probably took you know until after I got my Irish my first Irish cap that I did start to believe in myself and did realise that had a lot of potential um, because there's a lot of people out there that's got so much potential but they don't u- utilise it and they don't um, make sure that they, they give it their best shot so that's all I try to do, and you know, you listen to other people, um, especially family. Um, you listen to them a lot more than others. And when mom and dad, and you know, brother, and everyone else around me were saying, "Look, Stevie, you've got an opportunity here. It's quite yeah." Because you, 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 your family weren't necessarily into rugby. You weren't from a rugby town. Your school played rugby, but they weren't by any means, uh, you know, one of the stronger sides. It's sort of a lot of the guys you've been facing at underage level, I presume, from Black Rock and these other big schools. They're being told hey, you're great, you're from this big school, here's your future, their parents might have played rugby, whereas you were just coming completely from the cold. In, yeah, in yeah, I, I did, and I came from nowhere. I, m- I remember playing uh, Ulster Schools when I was in fifth year, and I was playing with guys like Lewis Stevens, who, Lewis Stevenson, who's mentioned in the book. These guys are two, year, two years older, and I was put in the second row with him, and I was like not even six foot, and I was like, what am I doing here? I'm so out of my depth, like this is ridiculous. Um, and... But I actually played really well, um, which is funny. Um, and yeah, it's it's a strange one because I did come in like myself. I, I was through the youth system, um, so left school at, at sixteen and went to college for a couple of years, um, and then yeah, no, get played back in 
with the youth and then into the, when all the schoolboys come back together again and that was under 19s for me so you know I was sitting there and uh, the next thing Andrew Trimble you know who was playing for Ulster schools and I was Ulster youth he was like you know he's this fella here like I was the only youth fella um, there and all the school and it took a while for everybody to kind of warm to me um, but yeah, um, and then I started playing really well, and they were like, "Geez, maybe this guy's got a bit of talent." Stephen, has this book given you a chance to look? I remember speaking to you when you retired, and so much of the chat was framed around the injuries that you've had, and you probably would prefer to do a book without even talking about them, I would imagine. But has this kind of given you a chance to think about the successes that you had and the positive points of your career that you were involved in the, the Grand Slam, World Cup, twenty eleven, Lions tours? all those things uh, and that because you, my point is when you retired people were saying what a great player did a lot of great things such a shame about the injuries mm-hmm. you've maybe been able to accentuate the positives in the book yeah um, there there are a lot of positives but there are also a lot of negatives but I feel like my, my whole career is a roller coaster I get so many ups and downs but I feel like the ups certainly outweigh the downs that's the way you're feeling about it oh now. Yeah, yeah yeah and that's why if, if my whole career um you know, I feel blessed to have played for, for Ulster, Ireland and the British and Irish Lions. You know, people will bite my hand off for what, it, what I've achieved. And sometimes you've got to sit back and reflect on that and see writing a book. You do that. When you write things on paper, you start um, you start thinking about things, you know, chatting to my, my ghostwriter, Patrick McCarry, about it. Um, and you're sitting there for six, seven hours on end chatting about stories and about things. And it just kind of makes you appreciate what you've achieved um, and, and I look back at my career uh, as a, a really good success and I had an absolute blast for nine years. Was there anything you could have done do you think differently in terms of managing your body or were these just injuries that were going to happen regardless? Oh, no, I think you know they're a bit unlucky some of them. Um, you know, uh, Playing against Zebra away and a prop, we, we score a pushover try and then a prop fall in, falls to my knee, I'm, I'm standing celebrating and a prop felt falls into me, and my knee slightly flexed, and the next thing I'm out of the game for six months because, you know, of an injury. And it's just like, jeepers, you know, I deserve a bit of good luck here. Um, but that's the way it goes. Um, unfortunately, with it, my career ending injury in 2012, I just went over badly on my ankle, and you know, I thought it was going to be a pretty quick fix um, operation to get it sorted out. And, you know, six months turned into a year as you know yourselves turned into 18 months and um, you know three or four operations down the line but uh, look as I said and I'm going to repeat myself slightly but I, I had such a good time and I look back on, on my career with fond memories there was lots of injuries obviously but in one game you were eye gouged twice by two separate players uh, your finger was bitten once by Dylan Hartley um, you got injured in training in a really innocuous way. Strange things happened to you on the pitch a lot. <laughs> yeah, they did, yeah. Um, it was bizarre, yeah, that game against that front side. Uh, uh, I can say Ravenhill now because it was Ravenhill back then. Um, yeah, it was bizarre, that game. And, you know, that came out of, that came out of nowhere. And initially I pointed the finger at uh, Bergamasco because he was the one right beside me. But as, as the pitcher kind of shows... Um, you know he was pretty cute in the way that he went about it, and thankfully he got a got a big ban. And you know if if somebody had eye gouged me and come up to me after the game and said, "Look, listen, I apologise. You know the red mess come over me. Um, I'm sorry about that. You know if there's anything I do to make it up, you know shake hands. I w- I would have shook his hand, no problem. But he denied everything. Like he denied everything. Made my life hell for weeks on weeks on end. And I was like, this is not the way to be treated. And honestly, look at the pictures yourself. I could have lost my eye 
you know, it wasn't just a, a poke in the eye or a, an eye gouge. It was trying to gouge somebody's eye out of their head. It, it was that bad. And um, I was very, very lucky. And, yeah, look, listen, if he, if he walked down the street, I wouldn't even say hello to the guy. Played, one of the big games you played in was in the World Cup against Australia. Um, the most iconic image from that one was you dragging Will Genya about 50 yards uh, across the field. Slight exaggeration, but this is the way it, these, it goes up five yards exactly, every story. Like, I like it. Is that one of those things that w- looked more remarkable to people watching than it felt to you at the time? You oh, yeah, definitely. Um, like my mum and dad and everybody were sending me picture messages of, of the front pages of the papers. Um, and yeah. I just thought it was a normal tackle. Dragged him back maybe three or four yards. The boys would come in piling over the top of me. To be honest, they could have got penalised for going off their feet, but um, we had the referee on our side that day and um, he, he awarded us the, the scrum. Um, and then off the back of the scrum, I knocked the ball on. So uh, <laughs> everybody says, oh, that great game you had against Australia, that amazing game. And that's what people remember is maybe one or two things that you do in a game. Uh, and yeah, that, that tackle on Will Genia will always be remembered. But I didn't actually play that well right, I played yeah. okay but I didn't play that well but um, yeah it was definitely lives long in my memory What about the current World Cup we've won the games we were supposed to win this weekend is really when it starts um, how much confidence or how do, how do we feel about those warm up games and the, the two two games early in the tournament do they matter at all is it just everybody has a fresh head for this weekend No they definitely matter they really do it's about building momentum Um, you know coming into the, the World Cup with a couple of defeats Probably wasn't great, but in Senate in 2011, we had four defeats and then had four wins in the bounce. So, um, but it's just good to see the guys playing well, and they're playing well individually and as a team. Um, and I'd see, to be honest, I, I just really don't think Italy are going to bring much to the table. Uh, you look at them against Canada, you know, I don't know how Canada didn't win that game. Uh, Italy were very, very lucky, and I think. No, it's going to be more of the same for Ireland. Um, they have a good record against Italy, and um, I, I think they'll do a, a good job Usually on you're it. You're thirteen to one to win this game. I mean, it must be the best odds. Oh, I'll, be, ever I'll not be putting us. a penny on them, <laughs> <laughs> so I won't. Uh, one of the people we talked to, we've been talking about the World Cup here in studio, is Matt Williams, and I bring up that name because I saw a tweet you sent, and I see uh, the eyes are going up to heaven here. So Matt Williams essentially was uh, criticising pretty heavily the contribution shot of. Um, Jared Payne. Jared, Jared Payne for the first couple of games. Your tweet a couple of days ago, Matt Williams talking horseshit about Ireland's midfield. Uh, you, you think he's been unfair? Very unfair. Um, I think if you look at Ireland's midfield, they haven't conceded any line breaks really in the midfield. Um, yes, Jared's kicked one stupid ball away against Canada, which um, resulted in a try, but they were winning by 35 points. He was just trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat. That happens. Um He's solid. Jared's really solid. He's trying to fill Brian O'Driscoll's boots, and Brian O'Driscoll is a one and a million, you know, player. You know, these guys don't come around, and everybody's comparing him to to Brian. Um, I've played with Jared. Matt Williams hasn't, and that's all I'm going to say because um, Matt Williams' record speaks for itself. And uh, when it comes to international rugby, and um, Jared Payne's a, a class act and I think Darren Key have reiterated everything that I've just said Is it not legitimate for Matt Williams to have his opinion on that though he's he's paid to be on television to oh, analyse yeah. play and he it sees is. some loose kicks and uh, yeah, has say Yeah of course of course it is and you know but the thing is people believe it so when people hear it from a pundit they automatically believe it especially fans that don't have as much uh, don't know the game as well as guys who have just retired after a year you know I don't think 
It was Matty, Matty Williams retired maybe 20, 30 years ago. I'm not sure. But um, look, he's entitled to his own opinion. I think it's wrong. Look, listen, he might come out in the media and say something next week that I agree with. So um, I always get on well with him when he, when he coached Ulster. Really good guy, a lot of time for him. Um, and we always get on well and we always had a laugh. Um, so he's probably laughing at me and I'm probably laughing at him <laughs> over, over the last comments. What's your opinion on the Ireland back row at the moment? Because it seems to be a position that we've had so many good guys in and you, you're you chief amongst them for the last, ever since we went professional pretty much, for certainly for the last 15 years or so. What do you think of the current crop of back rows? Yeah, I think it's brilliant. Um, it's great that Ian Henderson can slip in there if needs be. If say there's, there's a bad injury to one of them, it's such wood that there's not, but uh, they're, they're going well. Pete O'Mahony brings it just brings a, a bit more leadership and experience to it. Where Sean O'Brien is just let loose and he can do his own thing, and Jimmy Heaslip's just the rock that never really makes a mistake. Um, gets the guys over the game line when needs be. Says the right things at the right time. Um, and I think it's a, I think it's a good combination. You know, myself, Sean O'Brien, and Jimmy Heaslip were talked about as the best back row in the World Cup in 2011. And then we went out and let ourselves down against the second best back row in the world of uh, of Wales. Uh, so, look, listen, these guys know, especially with Sean and Jamie, they've been there, done it, got the T-shirt. They know that they have to pitch up every single game from now on. Um, and I expect those three guys to be in the starting position. It sounds like you feel that the team will have learned lessons from yeah. 2011. How, how far are we going to go in this tournament? I think with massive lessons, especially from 2007. Um, we learned a lot from that, and we brought that into 2011. But I just think that Joe Smith's got this team where... He will not let them um, not turn up. So when this Ireland team's given one opportunity, whether it be against Argentina or New Zealand, they they won't let it go. Um, and and I feel I feel even if if Ireland do get New Zealand in a quarter final, they're still in with a massive chance. Really, yeah, yeah. I do. Sorry, I, should, I shouldn't smile, but it's, it's so few people yeah. have expressed that opinion. It's yeah. almost if we lose, um, the fans were gone. It, it's just knockout rugby. Anything can happen. It's not the group stages. You don't get a second chance. And from the Wales game, I know that first hand, you don't get a second chance. And um, I think Ireland will be ready to go. And I think Joe, like Joe's been, been preparing for this France game for about six months six months ago, longer. Plays, gone through a lot of plays. Um, and I, I reckon he'll be doing exactly the same. For yeah, him. a lot of fan confidence and media confidence in the Ireland team comes from the fact that Joe Schmidt is so unbelievably good. His record is so good. You played under a load of coaches, and it comes out in the book, that you didn't necessarily rate or you just didn't think were right for the level that your teams were at. Steve Williams, Maddie Williams, Declan Kidney to a lesser extent. Are we right to have so much, like you know better than anybody the, the importance a coach has um, over the overall influence of the team? Is it, are we right to pin so much of our confidence on Joe Schmidt is my question. Yes, however, it needs to be player driven and you know you can't just expect the coach to um, make all the decisions and make sure the team is as well prepared as it can because he will do that but the players have got to take responsibility and that's one thing um, I was actually chatting Alan Quinlan recently and, and he was saying that the, you know it has to be player driven 2007 wasn't it wasn't player driven it was in, in 2011 and for this team to go places and to get to where Ireland have never been before to semi-final uh, and it has to come from the, those leaders and those players in that group Okay, well, good to hear your sound pretty confident. Listen, the book is called Stephen Ferris, Man and Ball. Stephen, great to have you in. Thanks so much. Thanks very much. Cheers, guys. Mm. You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I knew a butt whooping was coming at the back. I'm an alien.
think about it. Roy Jones is gone. Jane 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 Tony is gone. Iran Barkley is gone. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your own information. I'm an alien. You should be going. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. Yeah, absolutely lovely to hear that Stephen is... Uh, so at peace with his career as he should be. Uh, I'm sure he wasn't quite so sanguine about things when he was in the middle of all those injury crises. Some of them sounded absolutely bizarre. The one where he gets he's celebrating a try, standing there and gets stamped on by accident by a prop and ends up being out for six months. Yeah, this is kind of crazy stuff there. Uh, I didn't realise he was All-Ireland Javelin champion, Simon. That's pretty... <laughs> yeah. Didn't seem to give a damn about it. Just yeah, went down through a Javelin, won the All-Ireland... Uh, w- yeah, w- as he describes it there, he's in his runners, it's a rainy day, he's hungover, <laughs> he's asked to throw this Javelin, he throws it further than anybody in the school, <laughs> then he goes to the regional, throws it further than anybody there, goes to the nationals, throws it further than anybody there, and then literally doesn't give the sport another thought. Like, he is national champion at school's level. Um, and But what it was was an indicator of... Because there's loads of things in the book about how phenomenally strong he is without really knowing. Like one day his dad is sitting on a chair and he goes over to his mom and says, look how strong I'm getting. And he lifts his dad above his head <laughs> and his mom is screaming at him, put, put my uh, husband down, you know. Like it's, there's loads of instances where he's like a cartoon character who's breaking things um, and just, just doesn't know his own strength, essentially. Right. And that happened on the rugby field too. Yeah, uh, as the Wilgenia. I think he knew his own strength when he was dragging Wilgenia around as we got, got the impression there. But we haven't mentioned Ireland against Italy. Uh, well, myself and yourself haven't mentioned it there. What do you think about Italy this weekend? Yeah, it's such a strange game. It's, it's kind of fallen in between the games we were definitely going to win in the first two games and the France game, which is where all the focus is on. We're 19 points. The spread is 19 points against Italy. If it was a Six Nations game, it probably wouldn't be that high. But Italy are miles out of form. Ireland really haven't put a foot wrong in the last couple of games. But it just feels a little bit like a forgotten game. It's bizarre. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Like, but that, gonna... That's my only fear with it, is that it is this game that's fitting into this little pocket that we kind of see as a little obstacle. Yeah, as long as, long as the players and Joe Schmidt remember. Yeah. Could, could we have done but with no Italy? Matter, no matter how uh, determined you are to to really focus on that game, it sometimes can seep into players. We've seen this a million times in the past, where the next game, the one beyond the one you're playing is where your mind drifts right, to. Yeah. Could we have done with Italy playing a, like even a little bit better, even just to concentrate <laughs> people's minds on this? Because, I mean, they've been so poor. Yeah. Uh, and Bre- on Bre- the back of a really bad Bre- situation. Bre- coming back might be one way to kind of firm up your thoughts a little bit. But um, if you imagine in your mind's eye any way of Ireland losing this one, you, you can't see a scenario. Um, I yeah. hope I don't regret those words but you just kind of even if it's a tight game with 10 minutes to go with the better halfbacks we'll control the game better almost everything Ireland do is better than what Italy does the Irish Times latest Irish Times second captain's football podcast is out today that's yeah <laughs> they have asked for that really well, you can laugh I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me Yes, and we are going to talk about why the English teams are so weak in Europe, even though a couple of them managed to win last night. 
The um, non-Manchester teams. The non-Manchester teams. Well, the, the record is five defeats in eight games uh, in the Champions League, which isn't very good. Um, and obviously West Ham have knocked out of Europe already. So, yeah, we'll... we'll um, We'll talk about that with Gabriel Marcotti. It's a subject that's close to his heart. And we'll also talk to John Brown, who was there to witness Arsenal's latest painful defeat up close. All right, let's get to this um, story of Mayo football in uh, quite a bit of turmoil with this vote of no confidence from the players in the current management team. Uh, we are joined to chat about this by Malachi Clerken in studio and Mike Finnerty, sports editor of the Mayo News, will be talking to us in a couple of moments. Malachi, uh, I was about to call it a bombshell there. Is it? Is it really a bombshell? You mentioned in your piece this week that there was a death by a thousand cuts field of the year. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was odd. Well, I don't know if I thought it was odd. Uh, but I, I thought it was interesting, let's say, when uh, Vincent Neary was saying on radio on, uh, what was it, Tuesday night, uh, that this came as a total bombshell. I guess he kind of has to say that to a certain extent. But... Um, it seems, on a, on a very basic level, you have a group of really motivated um, elite players who are very close to the one thing that the whole county needs almost at this point. Um, and they they just don't fancy the two guys in charge. Well, Mike Finnerty, is that it? Is there one central issue that the players have with the management as far as you know? Well, they haven't obviously issued any statement or, or spoken publicly on the matter at all since the news broke on Monday night, uh, Tuesday morning. So it's, as Maliki said there, it's all very much in the realm of speculation. But what we do know for certain is that under that previous management regime, it was a very player-centred, player-focused sort of uh, environment. Huge emphasis on having ex- everything, having everything just exactly right so all the players had to worry about was performance. And as Maliki mentioned there, it was your standard, typical, high-performance sort of culture. Very well-oiled, very much rotating around the players. And reading between the lines in the last few days and reading Maliki's piece in, in the Times earlier this week, any slippage, even in the smallest percentage in terms of how the team was run, uh, that would not have gone down well with the group of players that are as ambitious and as focused as, as this group, and have, who have sacrificed so much uh, over the last five years to win in All-Ireland. Now, I've no doubt that Pat Holmes and Noel Kennelly tried to put the very best systems in place and obviously brought in Barry Solon, a top-class strength and conditioning coach who's now working with Arsenal as well, retained the services of Donny Buckley as coach. They were two massive appointments, I think, in just um, copper fastening the, uh, their, the appointment of the new managers and making sure everything got off to a good start um, but obviously during the course of the season as Maliki said there, 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 were, there was this constant low hum um, there was a constant sense that just things weren't fitting just right uh, on the face of it from a results perspective all, all was, was, was going swimmingly particularly during the summer up until the Dublin replay but when you have a situation where the vast majority of a squad, and we're, we're reading in the last few days, 80% um, approximately of the squad vote that they have no confidence in the management, then you just have to assume that these were issues that couldn't be reconciled. These were This was a situation that the players obviously felt couldn't be brought back fr- from the brink. And there is sympathy for Pat Holmes and Noel Kennelly and Mayo. And, you know, I, I certainly would regard them as two of the most decorated and two of the most... Uh, honourable Mayo men that ever played for the county and they won their All-Ireland Under-21 and, and you know they, they, they felt that they had more to come from this group next year but I think once 
once the players and this particular group, which I have to remember are the most successful group of footballers that have represented Mayo since 51, what they've done and achieved over the last five years, when they, when they speak um, in this manner and when they approach it this, this strongly and this united, um, it's very difficult to see how, how, um, how it can be reconciled. Mike, Martin Kearney said during the week that what, man, what manager in his right mind would want to manage Mayo now? Um, if I was a very good manager, yeah. I would love the chance. I mean, they're the third best team in the country. They have unbelievable standards. Uh, they know what... They, they, there's, they will do anything. They will literally do anything for you if you have the, if you have the game as a manager to go in to do that job. I mean, is, is that how people in Mayo are thinking, that it's like a poison chalice or something? Or, or are they thinking, right, well, the players have set such high standards, all we need is a guy to match those standards, and, and on we go. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Murph, and, and I have the height of respect for Martin, and I did, I did hear him make that comment, and I, I, think, um, I think maybe if, if he had elaborated on it or maybe it had been teased out a, a, little, a little more, um, I think he may have come round to the way you, you would see it and, and certainly I see it as well. Um, the reality is that an elite inter-county football squad like, like Mayo, like Dublin, like Kerry, it's all about the players. Um, you just listen to Jim Gavin, Amos Fitzmaurice, Brian Cody with Kilkenny. That's how all these high-performance environment works. And the reality is that this group are very close and they have come a huge way in five seasons. And I agree with you. I think... Certainly, there are plenty of, of people out there who would love to manage the Mayo football team. The, the, this, this isn't a case that um, they, have, they have been revolting every season um, since, since James Horne took charge and they've come up short. I mean, there has been a lot of big defeats. There have been a lot of close shaves in terms of winning this All-Ireland. Um, there have been a lot of um, performances as well that have, have had to go under the microscope. And, and they've always come back and they've got on with it and they've, they've come again and... I think they're a very attractive proposition for for a potential uh, successor to Pat and Noel. Obviously, that situation is still evolving. Um, we're waiting to see how it plays out. Pat and Noel, we understand, are, are are standing their ground, and they want they want to hear more detail from from the players. But certainly, I I, I don't think um, it's by any means a poison chalice. You will have a certain percentage of people who who will hold that view. I, I've got the sense over the last few days. There's, there's almost a, a generational um, split in terms of how people have reacted to the news. I think people who are who are aware of, of how high performance the, the whole inter-county scene has got now, I think they appreciate that it's, you're down to fine margins, you're down to small tweaks, and you're down to a, a whole culture rather than the old days where it boiled down to a bus breaking down, you know, um, pushing cars around the car park, that there was one big bang incident I don't think it, it, it's been like that um, and I think as you said Maliki mentioned it a little bit earlier this group are incredibly tight and, and the prime example of that for me was, was that team selection before, before the, the Dublin game with David Drake's selection I mean the fact that that was kept in house and everybody was guessing right up till the moment uh, the team hit the field that shows you that there's a huge bond there and a unity and, and that won't be easily broken are we letting the players off a little bit lightly here, though, Maliki? Uh, they had their... I mean, it's not as though they won three All-Irelands under James yeah. Horn. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's like yeah. they, it was a fairly similar-looking season from the outside, uh, a very easy path through Connacht for the most part. 
Um, a spectacular game against Dublin, ultimately falling short in the replay, despite being in a position to win that game with 20, 25 minutes to go. So they had their manager like James Horn, who empowered them and who they seemed to really bond with. Then they've got these two other former players who maybe are a little bit more schoolmasterish by the sounds of, of what you were writing the other day. And it doesn't happen for them again. Are we being a little bit easy on the players here? There's certain, you know, you can absolutely make that argument. And and I think, I think if you did, you know, if you if you got them in a, in a candid moment, they'd probably agree with you a little bit. I mean, the thing is, you know, no, nobody's any harder on them than they are, you know, that kind of way. Um, but we're probably talking about two different things. Like, they, I don't get the sense that that they've. Uh, put forward a vote of no confidence because they lost a semi-final replay. I think it's an accumulation of things over the year and also the fact, and I mentioned this later on in the piece, you look at their age profile, you know, you take out Dermot and Killian O'Connor and more or less everybody else is between 25 and 30. If this is going to happen, it has to happen in the next two to three seasons. Three is probably stretching it. Kind of has to happen in the next two seasons. And they are putting their lives into the next two years of this. They want to be led. Like that that was the sense the, the, the sense that I've that I've sort of got from talking to people around the situation is that when Horan left, it like I, I think there's a bit of a mis misunderstanding out here that, that that it's it seems a natural thing that the players just want Horan back. I don't think that that's actually the case. Right. I think that it's actually it, it's more so that when he he went, they they saw him as somebody who had brought them to the plateau that you need to be on to win an All Ireland. And like right now, there's probably three teams, maybe three and a half, if you want to put Donegal in there, that are that are on that plateau. The next level is is a good way down, and they wanted somebody that will move them. Move them on. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, the big argument against the players is people will people will be saying, well, you know, they, they've they've they haven't shown any respect to two former yeah. Mayo footballers, yeah. uh, arguing about how they could have done it differently. The fact of the matter is, they didn't fancy them as managers. They didn't rate them as managers. There's no nice way to do this. Yeah. You know, like, what's the nice way to do it? You know, like, like Cole has all 34 of them hop on a bus <laughs> and call around to the two guys' houses and have well, a I heard somebody say No, you're, it no, you're like, right. But it's, it's to do it or not to do it. You know, it, it, point, it's, yeah. it's how much responsibility do you take on yourself as a group of players and how much but do you lay the blame is, at the door but, of the manager? But, but, but isn't doing I, it... I do agree that once you've actually made the decision, there, of course it's no nice yeah, way to but do isn't, that. But isn't doing it taking responsibility? Like, isn't the easy way out to kind of go, well, look... Players play and managers manage, and we put our heads down and we and we'll go on with it. Like I just think that that they've got the sense that our time is short here, and we, like two years goes by in the blink of an eye, and what happens then? Uh, Mike, I'm on the Mayo GA website here. Uh, in the letter, the players riled against the inadequacies of the preparation and took it upon themselves to save Mayo football. Before, as they elegantly and hauntingly put it, football disappears completely in Mayo, unwept, unhonored. And unsung. 1948. <laughs> Sean Flanagan wrote that, apparently. Uh, this, is, this is not... Uh, this is not... This is not and, and, and the point I want to make, actually, by reading that out, is, first of all, this is not a new problem. No. Players want to be managed, and they want to be treated with... with they, they want to be given the best chance to win, and that's 
that's been going on for however long. That's 66 years ago, 67 years ago, whatever. Uh, this is there, there, it's nothing new under the sun, Mike. I think you know that that no. at the end of the day, you have to say the Mayo players want to be given the best chance to win in All Ireland, and they didn't feel they were given that this year. No, not at all. And, and as Maliki said, like this wasn't a meeting that was called or a vote that was taken or a decision that was taken lightly or, or organised on a whim. You know, obviously something that had been brewing for quite some time in the background um, came to a head. And I would imagine if the players felt they had any other option, they would have taken it because you're talking about a group here of, of some of the, the brightest and articulate footballers and lads that, that you'll meet all they want to do is play football for Mayo and, and all they want to do is give themselves the best possible chance of winning an All-Ireland. Now, I'm sure Pat Holmes and Noel Kennedy will say that's what they wanted as well and they believed from the way they spoke after the Dublin match that 2016 would see the team challenge again and move on again. And it is tough on, on two men who have been such great servants to Mayo football, but you know the reality is, as, as Maliki mentioned there, the window of opportunity for this group it is closing. They have. I remember when they came in in 2011. In a lot of their their early dealings with the press, you know, they were obviously already getting into the the, the mindset of the process and, and and developing this high performance sort of mindset. But a lot of what they said was, "We don't have the baggage of previous teams. Uh, we're a new group. This is a new start." But now the reality is, they're five years in, and they do have a certain amount of baggage, and they do have a certain amount of of um, stuff they have to deal with. And as soon as they get a sense that they're slipping backwards or, or that the, the standards are not being pushed on, um, th- then obviously they're, they feel we can't, we can't afford to wait any longer. And as you said, it's not the first time it, it's happened across the country or it's happened in, in Mayo. But one, one interesting element of it that, that we've been discussing here in the office in the last few days, you know, you're looking at potential ways this could play out. I don't think it's possible that you could have a, a sort of a limerick hurling situation where next spring you see a, a shadow Mayo team or, or a second string Mayo team or a Mayo team shorn of X amount of, of first choice players taking the field under under the present management. And the reason for that is a financial commitment that Mayo have. I mean, the chairman, Mike Kennelly, has been quoted numerous times in the Mayo News over the last eight or nine months saying minimum requirement for a Mayo team is an All-Ireland semi-final every year in order for Mayo to pay their bills. There's a 10 million euro debt on McHale Park to be serviced. Um, Mayo need to sell supporters, club memberships, county board draw tickets, and they need to maintain the goodwill of the best supporters in the country uh, and the biggest support base in the country outside of Dublin for a football team. And the reality is, that will only happen if Mayo are challenging for titles and All-Ireland titles. Um, and again, I, I don't think it'll, it'll be assessed today or tomorrow, but I think ultimately when this whole issue is being reviewed, when, when the dust settles, a lot of roads will lead back to the appointment process last year and, and the way in which that whole appointment was handled and the fact that Pat and Noel came in under such a cloud. It was none of their doing. They just happened to be caught up in the middle of it. But Unfortunately, it looks like the way that whole issue was handled at the time um, has has contributed as well in, in some way to, to the to the current uh, situation. Okay, Mike Finnerty, sports editor of the Mayo News, Malky Clerken. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks, lads. 
modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. Are you supposed to clear up? Uh, Malachi mentioned a couple of times a little bit of slippage there. Uh, apparently, there was a clear out of a few of the medical staff, which some of the players weren't happy with. There were some issues with logistics. A trip to Derry didn't go down. There was some problem with the bus there, according to what Malachi wrote earlier this week. A few people from outside the group would sometimes be in the dressing room, which players hate. <laughs> from every from every age grade at every level, you kind of want the people in the dressing room to be the team and the management and anyone outside of that generally isn't hugely welcome. So these are, the, as Maddie says, none of those things sound exactly like the kind of individual issues that would force the players into this revolt. But there seem to be uh, quite a few things lining up together. The other question is who would take over here? Yeah, and Malachy said there that uh, the James Horan solution might not be the solution that the players are looking for either. Um, now, I'm sure that they would be happy enough with James Horan as a uh, as a, if they, if asked right now if they said James Horan's your manager next year, they'd probably take it. But I don't think that this is necessarily a play to get James Horan back as the Mayo manager. It's more these guys aren't good enough. Let's let's get someone who's good enough. And whether that's James Horan or whether that's someone else, I mean. The big the, the 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 name on everyone's lips now is Stephen Rochford, who managed Curf into the club uh, title last year, the All Ireland club title last year, won a club title with Cross Malina, hugely regarded in Galway uh, uh, and in Mayo, obviously, but hugely regarded by anyone that's come into contact with any of the teams that he's coached uh, as a really innovative thinker, a young guy, guy very much attuned to the modern player and the modern player now you're talking about guys who have played since 2008 like Noel Kelly and Pat Holmes are you know it's it's not even of their generation necessarily um, and Rochford uh, you know has a, county, a goal at county final coming up uh, on not next Sunday Sunday week uh, for Currafane which they're heavily fancied to win and then to continue on into the Ireland Club Championship which would bring him to St. Patrick's Day of next year can he be convinced if the Mayo County Board called him and said, win your county final and then come be the Mayo manager. I don't know the guy, but I would, I would like, I would, I would suggest that he would take that option and that Currafin, what, I mean, what can Currafin say? They, the guy won him an All-Ireland title last year. I mean, if Currafin have to go looking for a new manager to take them into the, into the Connacht Championship, I think that's probably something that they, that they can do. I mean, it can happen and it can actually happen very quickly. Uh, and, uh, I was actually just reading a, a blog there by uh, on Spalpeen Faunach, a long-time listener to this podcast. And basically, the the blog post starts, civil wars can never be won, they can only be ended. And that's something that Mayo need very much to keep in mind, that there's no, this is this is not nice. Someone is, someone's nose is going to be out of joint in a very, very quick way. So the quicker it ends, the better. Well, it could end tonight. There's a meeting between board officers and players. We'll see what happens with that one. Just briefly, the other news today, GA-wise, is that the GPA's proposed new championship structure has been released. This was something that was leaked a while back and they weren't too happy that it came out into the public domain because they felt at the time they hadn't actually brought it to... They are only in the process of bringing it to all yeah. the players. Is this... Is the final product what was already released? Is it yeah, pretty it? much. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually urge everyone to... To actually delve, to delve, I mean, it, it takes two minutes to read, but there is merit in actually reading every single point of it because it is a really involved thing. You're not 
just talking about the football championship, you're actually talking about club championships and Sigersons and everything. Mm. But the idea would be that you'd get rid of the pre-season competitions. There will be no FBD league. No. This is the apocalyptic <laughs> vista we're now staring but at. But there'll be no Burn Cup, right? No, I'm sorry, Owen, I'm sorry. Um, that they would all be abolished, that the National League would be played six rounds over eight weeks. The, you'd get rid of the final, it'd be finished. But, you know, no semi-finals, no finals, which is utterly ridiculous anyway. Uh, uh, it ends in late March. Uh, play the provincial championships as a standalone thing. Uh, that would be played out in April and May. That the, the winners of that, there's an incentive there, you're the first seed. And then from there, it's eight teams of four. Uh, the provincial champions are, are uh, allocated the one of the top seeds along with the, the division one teams, um, and then that, that would if if you're a provincial winner that isn't in division one, then that basically what it is is you know it's these are ideas that we've all that we've all seen before, um, but the fact that it's coming from the GPA, the fact that there has been a huge consultation process uh, involved in drawing this up, basically. Yeah, and again, it's without kind of. I've been talking about club players quite a lot today for some reason. I don't know. It's it's in my head. But um, by the middle, by the end of July, uh, all but four teams are out. Uh, by the middle of July, all but uh, uh, eight teams are out. So there's there, basically there there is a space there for people to say there's enough time basically from when the championship gets really down to the nitty gritty that you can say to club players forget about training in January and February. Forget about it. Like, come be fit for the middle of July. The middle of July is when your championship starts. What actually happens, this all sounds pretty sensible, but what actually happens from, how did the GPA get this across the line? These are just proposals. Does this end up going to proposals, Congress? I mean, you know, what is the difference between this and a Jim, a Jim McGuinness column in the Irish Times? That's the key question. You know, now you would think that the GPA has uh, a direct line to the yeah. Central Council that that a discussion would begin with this. I mean, this is, you know, it's it's not, a, you know, they, they go into the numbers of it from the point of view of sponsorship, from the point of view of television, and that's all good. You know, like all of this is good. At the end, at the end of the day, what they're about is trying to reduce the the match the match days to training sessions ratio, which at the moment is hilarious. I mean, there, I don't know who it was. A GA player tweeted around... Uh, Around the time Luis Suarez came back from the World Cup last year, and uh, he was saying he he's not going to play any games. He's just going to have to train for three months with Barcelona. And the GA player said, "Well, welcome to our world, Luis. You know, I uh, hope you have a good time. It's pretty boring." <laughs> um, and I, I, I so th- there are more games, uh, and more games should mean less weekends for club players. But really, what you're what you're trying to do is get the thing finished by September the fourth. That, that, by the way, is another one of the suggestions that it all be done in the Iron Final September the fourth. Uh, it's all pretty common sense stuff. What they have to do now is try and, and lobby people to get on board with this. <laughs> How you go about so doing that? It's so obvious that they should do that. Like, it's, just the fact that there are 32 counties. Yeah. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you've got 32 counties. This is really simple. Yeah. Just, you've got the perfect number of counties for uh, the well, competition structure. you're forgetting about New York, London. No, uh, London are in instead of Kilkenny. So there you go. And New York... I'm sorry, New York. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, we, this conversa- you knew this conversation was coming. There could, there could always be a preliminary qualifier. Yeah. Go away against New York or whatever. Yeah. The NCAA have had, you know, the uh, uh, March Madness for mm. years, ages, 64 teams. For now, no reason. They have 65 teams. 
They just have one preliminary game before the end. So, right, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I mean, you know, it happens. But right. it is, it's, 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 it's so blatantly obvious that you're kind of looking at it thinking, is there anything new in this? The only thing that's new is that it's coming from the GPA and you would hope that it carries a bit of clout. Follow us on Twitter, at Second Captains, facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. hope you enjoyed today's show. If you missed the Henry Sheffern interview from earlier in the week, that's available for you to listen to through all the usual channels. We've got the football podcast out today also, so uh, plenty of Champions League reaction there. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you all. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Kieran. Cheers, Kenny. Thank you, thank you all. Thanks very much for listening. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home.